3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. You're here with me, Rosie, Malika and Priya across the way in Studio 2. How are you both going? Hello. Good morning. (laughs) It's uh, the 26th of August, which is a wild date, and we were noticing this morning as we rode in or drove into the studio that it's starting to get lighter as we arrive, which... Um, I'm personally a fan of, but Priya likes the darkness, so... I don't know, it feels a bit more stealthy. You feel like we're really getting up early. I know, and then I can sort of, you know, it it, it helps me justify the afternoon nap. Oh, that's justified. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I mean, anybody who's up here, um, if you're listening to this right now, if you catch our intro, uh, you have a free pass for an afternoon nap. Exactly, yeah, yeah, for sure. So we've got a massive show on today, as usual. Um, maybe we'll just jump into the rundown, hey? Yeah. Um, so you're going to start off by hearing the second of a two-part interview with Jay and Janide. So you heard the first part last week, and if you didn't, you can go back and catch that at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. And this is an interview with Jay and Janide where he speaks about the experiences of refugees stranded in Indonesia due to the Australian government's border regime, the consequences of being stuck in a country which is not a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, and the work that refugee activists, including himself, are doing to raise awareness and fight for their rights. And Jay and Janide is a Rohingya journalist and journalism editor at the Archipelago magazine. And um, I'm going to repeat this later, but a content warning, this segment does include some discussion of traumatic experiences endured while seeking asylum, including of suicide, which may be distressing to listeners who are refugees or from refugee backgrounds. And if you need to speak to somebody about this at any time, you can call Lifeline 24-7, Australia-wide on 131114. And then after that, um, we'll be speaking with Dylan O'Hara, Advocacy Coordinator at Vixen Collective and Gala Vanting National Programs Manager at Scarlet Alliance. And they're both joining us to discuss the road to decriminalising sex work in Victoria and the information kit developed by Vixen Collective and Scarlet Alliance to support people to make submissions to the government's public consultation process, which are due um, this Friday. We will then be speaking to Hung, who's a parent and co-founding member of Viet Speak. Hung is joining us to discuss the work Viet Speak does during bilingual education and their open letter to the Maribyrnong City Council calling for support and funding for a Vietnamese-English bilingual early childhood education program in Melbourne's West. And then we'll be speaking with Babs, a founding member of the Loud Jew Collective, a new group formed in Nam. And the group is a space for bringing people together and for pushing the boundaries of what it means to be Jewish. And Babs is joining us to chat about their online launch event, What is the Future You Dream Of? 
And lastly, we'll be speaking with Asami, who's a first-generation migrant who moved to Melbourne from Japan when she was four years old. She started Shapes and Sounds in October 2019 after spending five years in the community and youth mental health sector. During this time, she noticed and witnessed that young Asian Australians were not being given the same care and treatment as their Caucasian peers, and she's created this online platform to talk about Australian, Asian Australian mental health and well-being. So quite a big show today. Quite a big show. That's a really important thing to be talking about at the moment. I know obviously mental health is such a huge issue during COVID. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, on that, how about we jump to some CSAs and then we'll get into the headlines. Let's do it. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and these are the headlines for the 26th of August. 23 refugees who have been held in indefinite detention in Nam and Mianjin were released on Tuesday. While no full reports have yet been made, those released will be placed in community detention or on bridging visas, and refugees, ex-detainees and advocates continue to call for an end to temporary protection visas of all sorts and a proper social and financial support for refugees. Members of the remote Aboriginal community of Wilcannia in northwest New South Wales have spoken to NITV about the difficulty of isolating in overcrowded housing. Some have voiced concern that there was a lack of planning for COVID-19 outbreaks in remote communities and the community, sorry, and people are not being given enough support in order to isolate and undertake deep cleaning where needed. Barkindji woman Monica Kerwin-Wyman told NITV's The Point, I want to ask them where is your COVID action plan specifically for Aboriginal communities, not inner city, Sydney, not regional Dubbo, but these tiny Aboriginal communities with, with overcrowding issues and with health if, issues that come with living in small communities. As case numbers continue to rise, food and other essential supplies have been organised at a grassroots level and we'll be sharing some um, campaigns that you can support at the end of the headlines. The federal government's vaccine mandate for aged care, the aged care sector comes into force on the 17th of September, which mandates that all aged care workers should have at least one dose of vaccine. However, the Guardian Australia reports that hundreds of aged care centres are well behind on vaccine rates required to reach this deadline, with some centres vaccinating less than 10% of their staff with a single dose and almost 600 centres yet to to reach the 50% mark, the Guardian reports. The Health Services Union has called for the mandate to be scrapped, arguing that an already strange aged care workforce would be put under further pressure if workers were to leave um, because of the vaccine rules. And Patricia Sparrow, Chief Executive 
of Aged and Community Services Australia is quoted as saying, if our workers had received the jab in their place of work earlier this year, as was originally planned, the vaccine program would now have been complete. And finally, no, not finally, apologies. Second, penultimately, a bill that gives new powers to police to spy on suspects online, disrupt their data and take over their accounts called the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Bill, passed in the Senate with the support of Labor on Wednesday. The bill creates new types of warrants for the AFP and other federal intelligence agencies to change and remove data, take over accounts and spy on Australian citizens. The government says the bill is aimed at the dark web and offences including pedophilia, terrorism and the drug trade. However, concerns have been raised about the lack of oversight and safeguards. While some amendments and protections were made based on recommendations from the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, not all of the committee's recommendations were adopted. And finally, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is calling on the Morrison government to abandon their dangerous mutual obligations bill. The bill, the Social Security Legislation Amendment, Streamlined Participation Requirements and Other Measures Bill 2021, um, would mean that people who are required to do their job search through the government's online employment services system will only receive their first welfare payment after they sign a job plan. A loss of an average of $450 uh, per person, the Guardian Australia reports. And the AUWU note that this would lead to a saving of nearly $200 million for the government. And that's all for Thursday's morning's headlines. Um, just want to jump in there with a big shout out to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union for the incredible work that they've been doing through, I mean, for ages, but especially during the pandemic, um, trying to make sure that people actually get a living income. And as we know right now, things are particularly difficult and stressful for people on Social Security payments without that COVID supplement. Um, so you know, backing that call as well. And uh, just wanted to plug one more thing, which is that there is six days left to put in submissions to protect the mighty Fitzroy River. So the WA government is considering whether to open up the Martawara Fitzroy River to huge irrigated agriculture projects. And taking water from the river is going to put the Fitzroy at risk of a Murray-Darling-style disaster. And traditional owners, scientists, environmental experts, as well as recreational fishers are all supporting protection to keep the Martawara Fitzroy River free flowing and you can take action by heading to likenowhereelse.org.au and um, you can find more about the Fitzroy River there sign the petition like I said six days to go so um, really important to keep an eye on all of this as well I know we all had a bit of a panic and a fallout from the IPCC report but right now you know government's pushing to both destroy the waterways as well as fracking the Beetaloo Basin and we got to keep pushing back on every front I reckon yeah, totally. It's so important to uh, not lose sight of those kind of um, environmental catastrophes that are happening really locally and fight on those fronts as well as like these international levels. Um, I just wanted to share the uh, fundraiser for the Will Canyon community um, that I spoke of in the headline. So if you are wanting to support that fundraiser that's being organised at a grassroots level by family members of those in Will Canyon, um, you can search Far West New South Wales Fruit Fresh Fruit and Veggie COVID-19 on GoFundMe, um, and that will take you to their fundraiser. It's really great to see people supporting them, and then they're getting, um, you know, material support uh, to the community. But just again, it's Far West New South Wales, or NSW Fresh Fruit and Veggie COVID-19 on GoFundMe.
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It has just gone 12 past 7 in the morning. And we're about to hear the second part of a two-part interview with Jay and Janide, who you may recall joined us last week for the first segment. Um, and today he's going to speak about the experiences of refugees stranded in Indonesia due to the Australian government's border regime, the consequences of being stuck in a country which is not a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, and the work that refugee activists are doing to raise awareness and fight for their rights. Jayan Janide is a Rohingya journalist and journalism editor at the Archipelago magazine, and he's a student of political science and a human rights activist, though he was formerly an engineering and physics student in Myanmar before being forced to flee to Indonesia. So content warning, this segment does include some discussion of traumatic experiences endured while seeking asylum, as well as some discussion of suicide, which may be distressing to listeners. If you need to speak to someone about this, you can call Lifeline 24-7 Australia-wide on 131114. That's 131114. So every time they come up with new ideas, let's say, to near about come up with a stop in the border, like opening, you know, detention, in offshore detention, and then escort Marisons, he implemented that. From now on, we will not take refugees from throwing you here either by resettlement, who arrived in 2014 after 1st July. He implemented that, and refugees, since then, the refugees' number of resettlement from Indonesia has been reduced. And those hey, who came after 2014, he said that will no longer be able to resettle in 2014. So, okay, so which means the refugees that come in 2013 will be able to resettle in Australia. I came in 2013. Why have I not been resettled? Ultimately, what I realized is that they are leading toward a policy to the edge of something where they want to compel refugees to decide themselves to go back. They are all like development into a, you know, a point where refugees would make themselves to leave the country to go back. So that is the end goal of the Australian policy. It's not actually just to stop the border, just to stop the boat, but to actually, you know, finish this hope of resettlement, this hope of finding safety in Australia. Australia wants to stop the refugee coming to Australia forever, not just by boat, but Australia even do not want to think refugee to come to Australia, that's why they are also playing with the refugees' psychological trauma and all from all kind of aspect. Yeah, this is this really horrible way that this country tries to get around non-refoulement, for example. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they can't technically turn people back, but by forcing people into conditions that are inhumane, impossible to live in, then they say, well, do you want to make the choice to go home? Because this is what it's going to be like. And what you said mm. is 
the Australian government is kind of washing its hands of any direct involvement in that by effectively sponsoring people to be detained in Indonesia. So you recently wrote a piece for Forced Migration Review that talked about some of the effects of being trapped in Indonesia, which is not a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention. So what implications does this have for refugees such as yourself trapped there? And also, how has this become worse during COVID-19? Well, at the same time, I would say Australia is responsible because Australia chose this uh, Indonesia because Australia know that Indonesia is not a signatory country. Refugee will never be happy. Indonesia will never accept them for local integration. And Australia is also adding to this point to the Indonesian government to not to make any domestic policy for refugees to make refugees' life better. They do not want us to be in any better situation in Indonesia. Even if Indonesia does want to do something, I do realize sometimes the government do want to change the policy, but later they get confused because there is an external force that is preventing them from making any decision. That's Australia's influence. Because I can sense the, the information and I know how policies are designed, how things are happening in politics. So from my perspective, this is because of Australian influence. So on the other hand, Indonesia, because it's not a signatory to the UN Convention, it does not recognize any right for refugees. So refugees are treated as illegal immigrants according to their law of 2011, immigration law which recognize all the people that enter Indonesia illegally are illegal immigrants. They will not have any right, like to work, travels. They will be kept in concentration camp. Yeah, so in Indonesia, refugees are like living, you know, somehow surviving, somehow living without any basic right. It is even worse in IOM accommodation because that's what Australia designed to make refugees uh, go back. So... There are a lot of destruction. So when I was in IOM accommodation in 2015, the immigration imposed many destruction on us, like we cannot stay at night outside. There is a curfew. We have to come in with like from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. And then we cannot bring any friends. We cannot maintain any relationship with Indonesian girls. Like we can't have a girlfriend. <laughs> And then if, like, we can't drive any vehicles, we can't drive motors or car, we cannot go, you know, 20 kilometers far from our designated accommodation. So if the immigration see us in a, like, far from our accommodation, they will take us to detention. And then we cannot cooperate with Indonesian doing anything. And there is security. We have to report to the security where we're going. And then occasionally immigration would come to our accommodations, like not occasionally, regularly. And then they would call for the meeting, like reminding us the rules and, and regulations. If we don't attend the meeting, they will abuse us, you know. And then the way they do things is really abusive. You know, they call us Kuranaja, means like illiterate, like some kind of very degrading work. So... In every turn around of their space, they would abuse us. So that's why sometimes I hide myself to avoid 
the meeting, but they lock the door, then they abuse us. Yeah, it's more like living in open prison where you don't have any choice just to survive. So, and then we have conducted several protests, protests in Makassar against the horrible rules of immigration and also for our basic rights and for resettlement. And later I began to publish in international media and I was advocating for refugees as a journalist and publishing all the violations and whatever wanted and the uh, injustice that is happening against refugees, like covering up all the issues, which was something that is not favorable for immigrations and other related parties. And then from the protest, they arrested a lot of my friends who are like being activists, you know, organizing protests. Speaking up for their right, basically, it's not like being active. They are fighting for their right, uh, seeking for solutions. I was doing the same. I use journalism as an advocacy to raise the awareness. It's not like we are fighting against anyone. It's not like we are fighting against the government or anyone. We're just simply looking for a solution, finding a way to live. Then, as I said, do this is not what they like me to do. They want me to be a refugee, just like a refugee. Do what they say, follow what they say, and do not speak against them. So I was going against them, publishing what they are doing to us, and then they make my life very hard. I was receiving a lot of threats, and then if I don't stop writing, doing activists, then they said they will send me to real prison, not detention anymore, forever. And many times, there is, I do go to protests, but I stay kind of hidden from the protests because my friends told me that they come every day to look for me. That's the best way where they can arrest me because they cannot arrest me from IOM accommodation because there I was, I'm a refugee. They need to find an excuse doing something like political reasons. So I would stay hidden from the protests and my friend, as my friend told me that they would come to like look for me every time. So things were like, getting difficult. I realized that it's not today, it's not yesterday. One day they will arrest me and they will do something bad to me. And I sensed that's going to happen. That was going to happen. Then I made a choice to escape from Akasa and then resettle in Jakarta. Not really resettle, like move to Jakarta. That was in 2020, earlier in February 2020. And I have since been living in Jakarta, and I am like cut off the facilities, so now I am living independently in Jakarta. There is no right for refugees, no right for you know freedoms, speech, no right for you to speak out for your rights. So they expect us to be just refugees and do nothing, just follow what they want us to do. Yeah, regulation. So Indonesia is like an open prison for refugees. So that is the reason. On the other hand, you know, in 2018, Australia also kind of like implemented another policy, which was to cut fund from IU. It didn't really cut from IU. It made an announcement to harden refugee life. You know the politics. It didn't really reduce the money. It just made an announcement to harden refugee life. So what they thought is that, you know, after all the hardship, everything, 
what they are doing with all these things. Refugees somehow are resisting. Refugees somehow become resistance of all these troubles and trying to live with the hope that one day they might be able to have a better future. Just like myself, I knew that even though there was a lot of troubles and difficulties, I kind of tolerated all this because one day I believed that thing would change. So with this hope, refugees are kind of living, trying to you know resist themselves with all the difficulties and hardship. But I don't think Australia was happy that refugees is resisting their policies, their pressure, and then they implemented another policy to even harden their life. Like they kind of reduce harm, which means it's reduced harm from the refugees. So before the children were receiving like $100, $120 per month for the food and other stuff. Now after 2018, children, underage children would receive only like $50 for one month. And then the adults are the same. The, what also happened was that after that, no new refugee would be registered with the IUR. So no new refugees as asylum seeker that come after 2018 would be accepted by IUM for the Australian care. This has left about 7,000 refugees homeless in Indonesia, in Jakarta. Now you can imagine they cannot work. They don't have any regular support coming from government or any NGOs. Somehow they have like family members in their country, in other countries. Sometimes they support them. Not everyone has family member, rich family member who can support them. So like before the COVID-19, they would somehow do some sort of livelihood activities to survive. Maybe, you know, like anything they could to survive. But because of COVID-19, all these kind of livelihood activities are not stopped. So most of the refugees have resorted to sleeping on the street in front of UNICEF, begging for help. And they have been sleeping on the street amid the COVID-19. You know, Jakarta is the most infected city. And they were like there on the street without any protections. When I went there first time, I saw them. I was shocked. And I feel like there is no community left for refugees. No one cared for them. They were just sleeping on the street. And I did request to the relevant NGOs and anyone I could to find help. And no one responded. And when I asked about them, most of the time, like they don't have food for it. Sometimes Indonesian would donate them some food. But most of the day, most of the time, they don't really they just sleeping in this empty stomach. And there were some girls and women, you know, sleeping without any protective shell. Anything could happen to them at night. And there were many men. So, yeah, that was how they were living. And that is how they are living still now. I can't imagine to be in their shoes without any support. I don't know how they are surviving. It's absolutely appalling that people are put in this situation. You know, these are deliberate choices made by the Australian government to have people suffer in these situations Mm. and say we're choosing not to help even though they know that people have a cause to come here and yet they won't do anything about it.
So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and you'll just have heard the second part of a two-part interview with Jay Anjanide, where he spoke about the experiences of refugees stranded in Indonesia due to Australian, uh, due to the Australian government's border regime, the consequences of being stuck in a country which is not a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, and the work that refugee activists are doing to raise awareness and fight for their rights. Um, this segment did include some discussion of traumatic experiences endured while seeking asylum, including of suicide. And um, just a reminder to listeners that if you do need to speak to someone about this, you can always call Lifeline 24-7 Australia-wide on 131114. And uh, if you want to hear the rest of this interview... We'll be able to come back to you later in the show to let you know uh, there's going to be a segment where the interview is played in full later on 3CR. And um, you can support raising the, raising the profile of these issues by donating to the Freedom Street documentary fundraiser, which covers the story of Janaid and other refugees trapped in Indonesia due to Australia's border regime. And find out about how to donate to that fundraiser at freedomstreetfilm.com. And now we're going to go into an interview. Um, oh, we're about to go into an interview with Dylan O'Hara, who's advocacy coordinator at Vixen Collective, and Gala Vanting, who's the national programs manager at Scholar Alliance. And they've joined us to discuss the road to decriminalizing sex work in Victoria and the information kit that's being developed by, by Vixen Collective and Scarlet Alliance. Um, so hello, Dylan and Gala. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you both making the time, and I know that you've both put a whole lot of work into developing this kit, but also uh, engaging in peer advocacy and organizing for sex workers in Victoria, but also nationwide. So can we start off by hearing a little bit about the local history of organizing by sex workers for the decriminalization of sex work in Australia? And maybe we can start with a bit of a focus um, on Victoria with Dylan and then go to Gala for more of a national focus. Sure. So uh, thanks so much for having, for having us on to talk about this. Um, sex workers in Victoria have been uh, organising uh, and fighting for decrim for, I guess, literally decades. Um, there's a huge amount of work that's happened um, 
across, yeah, really across all parts of the sex worker community in Victoria. I think something that was really important in the last few years was the work that uh, Vixen Collective um, and uh, other Victorian sex workers did to get uh, the Victorian Labor Party to put decriminalisation on their policy platform. And, uh, yeah, and then it's really been full steam ahead since then, um, particularly through the last 18 months um, throughout the, the review uh, that happened last year. So, um, and now here we are. It's, it's a huge, um, it's a huge milestone, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, Gala, do you want to talk a little more broadly about Australia? Sure. So, I mean, sex workers like Dylan said have been working for the decriminalisation of our work um, for quite some time now. In Australia, um, we have two jurisdictions currently that have um, some model of decriminalisation. Um, New South Wales was the first to decriminalise, and that was in 1995. Um, and that was really due to the, the very hard work of um, sex workers uh, to address um, police corruption um, within the sex industry in New South Wales. Um, New South Wales gave us a really fantastic model for um, what it can look like um, for sex workers to access, you know, health, justice, labour rights, um, and, you know, and has not had it any negative impact on the community um, at large or the sex worker community um, itself. And then in 2019, um, we worked to decriminalize um, sex work in the Northern Territory. Um, and that's the best model that we have in the world right now. Um, and Territorians should be pretty proud of that, the work that, that they did on that. Um, there are active decriminalization campaigns in most other states, territories. Um, and, you know, the reason that we... Um, the reason we work for this is because without framing sex work as work, um, sex workers don't have access to, you know, the basic protections that all other workers in Australia enjoy. Um, so we're really working to frame that, um, frame that up in every state and territory because we need to see a consistent regulatory model across the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is an issue of labor rights, and I think putting that front and center is so important, um, especially for people who, I don't know, get – I guess there's a lot of conservative mystification around what decriminalization um, would mean. So maybe we can go a bit more into the importance and meaning of full decriminalization versus a more partial decriminalization model, for example, like what we've seen in New South Wales. Um, so um, maybe, Dylan, do you want to speak to this first? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is really important at the moment, um, and it's one of the reasons that um, it's, you know, it, it's so exciting that uh, so many people, uh, sex workers and our supporters, are participating in the consultation that's happening at the moment. Um, it's going to be really important in Victoria that we achieve genuine, full decriminalisation that includes everybody. You know, Gala just gave a, a great summary of, of the benefits, of or some of the benefits of, of, of full decriminalisation. Um, for sex workers, and we don't want anybody to be excluded from that. That would be a, you know, um, yeah. Look, I think it would be a, it would be a huge lost opportunity and a huge shame. Um, Gala, do you want to talk a little bit more about this, about the about the criminalism model? Sure. So, look, the reason that we use the language full decriminalization is because um, we want to disambiguate um, a lot of the models that sort of tend to emerge in these conversations. Um, there are lots of suggestions that might call themselves decriminalization, but actually still maintain some criminal penalties for certain types of sex work or for certain parties to a sex work transaction. Um, 
full decriminalization of sex work removes all criminal penalties um, for sex work, and it also removes police as regulators of industry. And, of course, we know that police are not qualified to regulate industry. That's why we have an entire um, government body that does that in every state and territory. Um, and, it, you know, I think what happens in these kinds of um, law reform processes is that we're asked by politicians um, and the powers that be to make compromises or to sacrifice um, particular members of our community in order to get, um, you know, gain for, um, for the majority. And that sex workers have really squarely um, rejected that proposition across Australia, um, but, you know, to varying levels of success. Um, in New South Wales, we do still have um, criminal penalties around street-based sex work, and this is also being proposed in Victoria. We know that this won't work. Um, we know that it's incompatible with a lot of the, um, the intentions that the government has stated and a lot of the media that they've done around sex work. Um, so we're really, we, we really want to encourage people to push back against, um, against that particular issue. But, you know, there's a whole lot of others that they've sort of highlighted as, um, you know, areas of concern. Um, and any time we retain any kind of form of the previous regime, whether that's licensing as it, as it ends in Victoria or full criminalization as it exists in South Australia, any time we retain even just a little piece of that model, we still allow um, criminalization of particular sex workers. And generally, those are most, the most marginalized sex workers, and sex workers are not willing to make that sacrifice. Yeah, that's a really... Um Thank you so much for spelling that out, because I think it really clearly states that um, for this to be successful, for this to actually be equitable, um, you can't retain any of the broken old system um, to try and, I guess, well, I mean, it is a it is a law reform, but it needs to be something completely different. So um, can you tell us a bit about the call for public consultation and why people should make submissions? And I know that um, you've worked together to make uh, an information kit for uh, to encourage submissions and, and help people to develop them, not just for sex workers, but also for the general public to get involved. So, um, yeah, Dylan, did you want to speak to that? Yes, yeah, sure. So there's about, uh, what is it, it's Thursday morning. Um, there's, so the consultation closes tomorrow at five, so there's not a lot of time, but there's still time to make a submission. Um, it's, yeah, look, it's really crucial that sex workers are centred in this process. You know, sex workers in Victoria have been living with these laws which are dangerous, discriminatory, um, you know, as Gala said, you know, don't recognise sex workers' work and uh, undermine our, our, you know, our human rights, our, our workers' rights. Uh, we've been living with these laws for a long time. We know firsthand what they do, um, and we know what's at stake um, if we don't achieve full decriminalisation. And so, uh, the importance of, you know, I guess um, to people listening to this, if you're a sex worker, you know, this is, you know, this is. This is about you. Um, please make yourself heard. Um, it's so important that our voices are heard. And if you're a, you know, if you're an ally, if you're a supporter, if you uh, a lover, a friend, a family member of a sex worker, um, you know, we need your solidarity at this time. We need you to amplify our voices and, you know, make sure that, uh, yeah, I guess make sure that the government sticks to the commitment that it's made. You know, the government's made this fantastic commitment to decriminalise sex work, but as Gala, uh, you know, as Gala said, it, it actually falls short at the moment, and so this is a really crucial opportunity to, um, you know, to speak out in support of sex workers if you're not a sex worker, um, and really hold the government to account. 
Yeah, definitely. And really encourage listeners to uh, look up both Vixen Collective and Scarlet Alliance on, um, I mean, on Google, but on social media as well, and you'll be able to find that information kit. Um, so I also wanted to ask um, Gala about the Scarlet Alliance National Relief Fund, which uh, has been doing some amazing work uh, to support sex workers during the COVID-19 pandemic, when, of course, it's been incredibly difficult to work around restrictions. Yeah, so last year, I think in April of 2020, um, we began um, crowdfunding, I guess, for a mutual aid project to deliver some emergency financial support to sex workers who fall through the cracks of um, the government um, income support measures, um, which those cracks are uh, pretty, pretty, pretty wide at the moment. Um, so we've been working to support sex workers through lockdowns, you know, so anytime um, a community of sex workers in a particular jurisdiction um, has a long lockdown, um, we open the, the fund to them. So we've been running it now for almost 18 months um, and raised over hmm, probably 200000 by this point. Um, and it, that, that all gets delivered directly into the hands of sex workers who need it. So um, the fund is administrated on um, lots of volunteer labor and also the work of um, some of the staff of our member organizations in every state and territory. It's a really, really big job, um, and the, the passion uh, and labor that's gone into it has been really incredible. Um, so, you know, in addition to um, accessing the Victorian government's current review, which is actually really easy to do, you can submit, you can write something, uh, something original, or you can also just answer a five-question survey that they have on their website. Um, you know, so that's a great way to show your allyship, um, but so is a, a donation to, um, to our campaign. Um, which which is pretty easy to find if you uh, link in with our social media. Yeah, um, and also encourage people to really donate to that fund as well. Imagine if we had a comprehensive social security net, right? Um, <laughs> but... Um, Maybe just to wrap up, I was wondering, um, maybe Dylan and then Gala, if you want to talk about what happens next, including sort of the need to to fund the work of organizations like Vixen. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, at the moment, um, you know, the Vixen Collective is Victoria's recognized peer-only sex work organization. That means we're run by and for sex workers, current and former, exclusively. Um, and, and we don't have um, we don't have any funding, so Victorian sex workers don't have access to a funded peer service, and that's a really huge gap. Um, it's you know it's, it's a huge gap for everybody, but um, you know particularly I think it's particularly problematic for um, sex workers in re- uh, re- oh god there we go <laughs> rural and regional always trips me up rural and regional areas. Um, you know, sex workers from migrant backgrounds, um, trans and gender diverse sex workers. And so a really, you know, a really crucial part of the success of decriminalisation is going to be actually addressing that um, and, and making sure that, you know, um, the government's actually consulting with us along the way throughout the process. Um, Gala, do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah, I mean, what we know from every other state and territory in Australia is that um, the essential work of um, health promotion and um, workers' rights education and justice um, among the sex worker community is really driven by um, our member organizations. Um, And a peer-only approach is what's necessary to get the best um, outcomes, particularly in the space of health. And there's definitely 
um, a, a good body of research to back that up, um, and, and that's implemented globally. Um, so in order for the benefits of decriminalization in Victoria to be um, maximized for the sex worker community there, um, the, the funding of, um, of a, a peer-only organization, you know, to, to help people actually understand what the changes in the laws are and how that actually impacts their material reality is absolutely necessary. Um, so this is something that we encourage people to advocate for. Um, and it's, it's in our info kit, we can kind of give you a little bit of ammo um, for, you know, why that is the best practice for um, sex worker health, justice, and um, overall well-being. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Like, this is the principles of nothing about us without us, right? Um, it's, it's so important. Um, yeah. yeah, 100%. And... Um, Thank you both so much for taking the time to, to sort of spell this out um, for our listeners and I really encourage listeners to look up Scarlet Alliance and Vixen Collective where you can find that info kit, a reminder that submissions close tomorrow, so please get them in. And thank you so much, Dylan and Gala, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and you have been listening to Dylan O'Hara, Advocacy Coordinator at Vixen Collective and Gala Vanting, National Programs Manager at Scarlet Alliance, who joined us to discuss the road to decriminalizing sex work in Victoria and the information kit that they've collectively developed to support people to make submissions to the government's public consultation process. A reminder that this is due on Friday, that is tomorrow, and really encourage any sex workers that are listening to make a submission and also the allies, friends, lovers, community of sex work, uh, community um, within which, you know, sex workers are a part to make a submission as well. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. And next up, we have Huang joining us, a parent and co-founding member of Yet Speak, um, joining us to discuss the work of Yet Speak um, around bilingual education and also their open letter to the Maribyrnong City Council calling for support and funding for a Vietnamese English bilingual early childhood education program in Melbourne's West. Good morning. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Uh, Good morning. Hi. How are you? <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Um, I was just wondering if you could begin by telling listeners a bit about Vietspeak um, and how and why uh, the organisation was formed. Uh, yes, so Vietspeak uh, was born out of last year's uh, public campaign to save the Vietnamese English bilingual program at Footscray Primary School. Um, so I, I won't talk too much about, you know, the campaign itself, because um, it will come across, you know, as as we talk. But essentially, there was 
a groundswell of community support to that campaign, um, which kind of, um, ex- you know, exposed the faults of why the school closed um, that long-standing program. Like, it, it had a history of 35 years, beginning in 1985 as a mother tongue maintenance program. Um, and so the the community voices that came came through were saying, you know, um, that the community valued language and its relationship to place. You know, kids go to school not just to get NAPLAN results, but they're also there to learn about who they are. And and, and, and place has a big sort of role to play in that. Um, and the community also expressed um, the benefits of multilingualism uh, as it is reflected in, in the lived lives of many parts of Melbourne, such as the West. Um, and the social justice aspects of a minority language being sort of discarded because of the changing demographics of the area are brought about by gentrification and, and development. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that, that groundswell of support, um, uh, that was something that was really valuable because um, it w- wasn't just about what was happening at the school. You know, it, it was it was a much broader, um, I guess, movement. And so the members um, from Vietspeak came out of that campaign. So teachers, community um, ad- advocates, education, um, academics, um, linguists, um, that's the core bulk of Vietspeak's membership um, in terms of, you know, the, the core group that, you know, does the does the work and 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 regularly meet so yeah so that's that's a bit speak thank you yeah it's um firstly just so i mean obviously so sad that that program was eventually closed down despite the community um fight and uh campaign to save it but also really great the way that these groups can kind of emerge from those fights and can kind of continue the fight on different fronts as well um and also so important yeah to note just there you're talking about the reasons that this this program which has such a long and rich history is being scrapped or was scrapped um in terms of changing demographics and yeah who kind of has power to make those changes as well um i just wanted to ask a question about um obviously as we were saying just there, the dominant culture of so-called Australia um, is pretty monolingual um, and many bilingual kids um, in school are told by teachers or by parents or by other kids not to speak languages other than English once they do um, reach school age. Um, of course, there are so many languages spoken by Indigenous and migrant communities across the continent, and I'm just wondering if you could speak about why bilingual education might provide these communities and these kids um, what what it might provide to them that you know monolingual education just simply can't. Um, yes, I mean this this is a really rich topic. Um, you know what what is bilingual education? But but firstly, I, I think let's talk about mo- monolingualism as a legacy of colonialism. So um, so to start there, we'd have to acknowledge that countless indigenous languages have been lost since British settlement. So in terms of language diversity in the continent that is Australia, like that, that's the first shame of modern Australia. Um, but this, this shame has a darker side in that it, 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 it in turn makes children whose home language is not the colonial language to feel shame about their own language. So there's, there's, um, 
there's the first loss of languages, and then there's the sort of uh, emotional um, uh, impacts of that loss because then you then you start to feel like um, you can't express your own sort of culture that doesn't fit into the colonial culture. So bilingual education addresses this by normalizing language polarity, so through education. So the school curriculum is taught in two languages in a bilingual program. So you've got, um, for example, if it was Vietnamese English, there'd be 50% um, of the curriculum taught in English and 50% of the curriculum taught in Vietnamese. So it's very different to LOT where you get one hour a week um, in bilingual education. It's equal, it's equal, but it's taught through the curriculum. So it, whether it's maths or, you know, science, um, because LOT isn't really enough. I mean, um, you know, I, I did Italian growing up and I still have one or two words and, and, you know, some, you know, joking phrases from the Avanti um, book. But, um, this is 12 hours a week. So children are immersed in language. So students get to learn amongst their peers. So there's this, um, social permission to speak another language that isn't the colonial language. Um, and students also hear their teachers, um, use, um, the language and the school community, um, is then immersed in that language. And this is where undoing language shaming is really important because for migrant kids who speak a language at home that even isn't the two languages taught at school, um, they can also feel that their language is valued and accepted because they see other migrant kids in their class having the permission to speak their home languages. So we're talking about this idea of a home language. Um, then we can also extend that to, you know, um, notions about place, you know, where you live and the way that shapes your sense of who you are and where you are in the world. So um, that's why the loss at Footscray Primary is was so important and really felt by the community because not only was it a language that had a le- relationship to the community that still live in the area, but it also provided opportunities for students to come out of the immersive language environment at, at in school and go into the community, you know, into the CBD, into the Footscray market and continue on that immersive experience. So, again, it's about normalising language and having that rich cultural experience through education. So, mm. yeah. Um, and, of course, there are sort of the educational and cognitive benefits of bilingual education, and that's been well-researched and acknowledged. Um, and even, you know, uh, other bilingual schools value that. But w- what's really unique about um, the program at Footscray Primary that was ended is that it's one of the few in Victoria that is a, also considered a community language. Yeah, well, that that fact, yeah, that description you're giving there of, um, you know, kids finishing school and then going to actually speak um, Vietnamese with, you know, a shopkeeper um, uh, at the market or whatever it is, is so um, important in building community and even just thinking about 
um, you know, all the issues that um, around kind of communication of COVID-19 messages in community languages and just thinking about how important like normalising um, multilingualism is in terms of being able to kind of build community and build connections between communities as well. So, yeah, thank you. Um, I was wanting to move on to uh, this open letter that you, that Viet Speak, you have um, written to the Maribyrnong City Council. Um, you're seeking support for a Vietnamese English bilingual early childhood education program. Um, can you just tell us a bit about the letter, how the campaign's going and kind of what you're asking for? Um, yes, so the... The, the open letter is um, one of our current campaigns. So last year, um, during the campaign at Footscray Primary, actually one of the um, community members who, who did sort of come through and um, really felt the loss was actually a, a parent who used to have kids at the school, and he was also on the school council. And he's, he's not of Vietnamese background, but... Um, he really valued the program because um, he is also from a Spanish-speaking background and it just also happened that he was um, nominating himself for the local council elections that um, last year and he was um, successful. So he joined the Maribyrnong Council last year and then, um, I guess, took the voice of the community um, to council and managed to get council to support a motion uh, to establish a new bilingual program in, in the municipality. So so since then, Vietspeak, we've been doing the work on our end. So we've now partnered up with um, Little Multilingual Minds, which is part of the Dynamics of Language, um, a, a research centre based at Western University, um, sorry, Western Sydney University. And um, so they've been looking at ways to, um, like they're, they're doing lots of things there. They're federally funded by the ARC, but they're, one of the things that they're doing that's really important for us is that they're looking at how to um, look at language education that is specific to um, communities and specific to locales. So um, we're partnering with them to establish a free year Vietnamese English bilingual program at a kinder level. Um, so, so this would involve a PhD researcher coming into an early learning centre in the West to develop and deliver a locally tailored bilingual kinder program. Um, so the researcher will evaluate um, what's, you know, uh, the sort of lie of the land, so to speak, um, and work with the centre to ultimately set up um, new models as well for programs to be replicated at other at other centres. So what this program needs is co-funding, and uh, we're looking um, for council to provide that support because um, little multilingual minds can um, can ha uh, uh, apply for um, co-funding from the ARC, but. What we need is locally sourced funding. So um, we're looking at council to chip in to chip in the other half. So we're now going back to council to see if they can live up to the motion last year in practice. Mm. So what this open letter is doing to is to again garner that public voice um, because we know that that public voice 
can be really um, impactful in letting the council know that the community is behind this and that the council can have confidence that it is serving the interests of the community. Yeah, totally. And so important for council to kind of stump up the funding for, yeah, and support in practice what they've committed to, um, in theory at least. So I was just wondering if you could let listeners know where unfortunately running out of time for this conversation but just let listeners know where they can find and even sign the open letter um and if you wanted to share any other viet speak projects that are currently underway um yes so um, if you visit our website uh vietbilingual.org and that's one word um there'll be links to the open letter as well as links to other uh, projects where we've, we've, um, we're currently undertaking. I mean, we're, we're a group of volunteers and we don't really have much money, but, you know, it's, it's always often that community grassroots sort of organizations, you know, where we, we're pretty good return for, um, for the, the kinds of resources, limited resources that we have. But we are doing, um, a podcast on bilingual families in the West. So if you, um, subscribe to our newsletter you'll get notification on that but also if listeners know of any um, one who might want to participate in the podcast series um, that, that, that'll be great to get in touch with us. Um, we're also hosting an upcoming forum at Collingwood Yards on community languages so yeah um, visit our website it's vietbilingual.org uh, that's one word. That is so great. Thank you so much. You are doing a huge amount for a group of volunteers. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Thursday Breakfast. No worries. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. And just then I spoke with Hung, who is a parent and co-founding member of Viet Speak, about um, the work of Viet Speak around bilingual education and also their open letter to the Maribyrnong City Council calling for support of an early childhood education um, bilingual program in Vietnamese and English. You're on Thursday breakfast. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, we're speaking with Babs, a founding member of the Laoju Collective, a new group formed in Nam. Um, the group is a space for bringing people together and for pushing the boundaries of what it means to be Jewish. And Babs is joining us to chat about their online launch event that's coming up, which is called What is the Future You Dream Of? Welcome, Babs. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you going this morning? All right, I've got some tea. Good, you've got some tea. I've had a coffee and a um, a vegan cookie, which I get every Thursday morning, so I'm I'm ready to go. Um, <laughs> could you tell us a bit about Loud Jew Collective? I know, obviously, you're a newly formed group, but um, how and why did the group come about? Great question. Basically, a 
group of us who have seen each other in different organising capacities and throughout the Jewish community um, started to feel like we really needed to establish something new. A lot of this has to do with the fact that um, an old leftist organisation, which has been really important historically, especially in the 80s, um, was becoming an increasingly toxic space for uh, them and queer members, but also um, the capacity to organise in solidarity around Palestinian self-determination was being really sidelined. And there was just a moment, I think, over the summer especially, and following from the sort of dissolution of that group, where a few of us realised we had all of these skills, which we'd formed in different places, and that there was a need to share those skills with our community and bring that all of our experiences in organising together, um, like without getting ADL on my back, like for the purpose of radicalising Jews who um, are questioning and moving towards more anti-fascist actions in their life, both within and without the Jewish community. Mm, thank you. Um, yeah, I think that is, you know, the Jewish community, um, as, as a member of that community, is often kind of considered quite politically conservative and definitely overwhelmingly Zionist in, in so-called Melbourne, at least. And um, there was that recent Australian Communications and Media Authority investigation that's been launched um, t- into that episode of Q&A that focused on Palestine, um, yeah, launched by the, or uh, prompted by the Zionist Federation of Australia's complaint. So I was wondering if, um, you know, why why it's important for Loud Jew Collective to think about yeah not not confusing and resisting the confusion of Judaism and Zionism, um, which is something that is kind of pervasive uh, in in discourse here, um, and why yeah why it's important to organise as a as a Jewish a group of Jewish voices um, to counter that that part of the community. Yeah, well, I can say like just for myself at least like. I'm not a Zionist, but I don't think I would necessarily have to, like, cross myself off the list of being a real person if I was. Um, I feel like a lot of it is about different visions of Jewish self-determination and um, trying to allow for a productive space where we can engage in politics that aren't rooted in that. But at the same time, recognising that um, because, because of histories of migration, it's you know, it's pretty unfortunate, but the, yeah, the majority of the Jewish community here are Zionists. And I think as um, radical Jews of different positions, one, we have a responsibility and a choice for ourselves for choosing our own futures and um, modes of organizing and expression, which aren't about that. But also, if we have a problem with that, we need to take responsibility for that on the inside and find ways to um, sort of actualize our own visions of what it means to be Jewish beyond that and for for a Jewish identity which is not about nationalism or racism or fascism um, and in doing so to have a greater voice within the Jewish community because I guess like as far as building a movement in solidarity against fascism and towards self-determination for different peoples like we will have the greatest mainstay within our actual community so we're trying to be strategic and generous in that capacity um, while also acknowledging that, like, yeah, different people can be who they need to be, but um, 
there needs to be able to be room to discuss that productively. And in most um, historical institutions within the Jewish community, that hasn't been possible and there hasn't been space for people who um, take anti-Zionist or non-Zionist positions. Mm, yeah, that's so um, you do say that in your description of the group that it is about making space and I feel like that is a really um, important thing because it's not necessarily something that there has been space necessarily for. Um, so, yeah, that making space is a kind of beautiful way of putting it. It also, you're talking about um, imagining futures and that kind of links to, I guess, the theme of your online launch event, which is titled, What is the Future You Dream Of? So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that launch event um, and what you've got planned. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So it's pretty disastrous time to make any future plans. Like, I can't even tell you what I'm doing tomorrow because I'm waiting for a COVID test, but we... Our goals are kind of around this idea of envisioning um, different futures um, while also like recognizing the different histories that we all come from um, and for embracing different voices as well. Um, and yeah, having a Jewish organization which isn't just about Jews or for Jews. So our first event is going to be on Thursday, the 2nd of September at 7.30 p.m. on Zoom. Um, and we have free tickets and tickets by donation as well. You can find out more about it on the Loud Jew Collective Facebook and Instagram account. It's going to be incredible. Um, We've got a list of people who will basically be speaking about their imaginations for possible futures, and the speakers on the list include um, Eugenia Flynn, Janine Hurani, Joan Nestle, Summer Sabawi, Jordi Silverstein, Elsa Tewitt Rosenberg, and Sanaki Burma. So obviously a killer lineup of people um, who think, who fight, who write, and make things, who inspire us. And um, it's kind of an example of our opening set of the kinds of conversations that we're interested in having in the way that we want to be able to exchange experience um, for, yeah, to achieve things with people power, I guess, and to learn. Um, from, like, the people who live with and around us. So it's about a lot about connection and looking forward. Mm. Yeah, it's um, obviously a killer lineup and also such a... Um I'm always so impressed when people can write and speak to, yeah, their visions of the future. It's such, obviously such an important thing to be thinking about, but, yeah, as you say, quite challenging um, at times. I also... Um, wanted to touch on you you mentioned yeah that it's not necessarily a group just for Jews or you want it's it's to be engaged with um by lots of different people and I was just wondering um about yeah solidarity and ideas of solidarity and working um across different community lines um and whether this is of particular importance to the collective yeah definitely none of us are um you know just Jewish we we participate in different spaces and um, I think our greater vision, even though it's like really lofty, is um, to resist exploitation and domination. And I feel like in an increasingly, uh, yeah, as white supremacists, white supremacists, fascists get more organized, it's really important that um, different groups are able to use each other's resources to fight back and to feel safe to... Um, grow and build their communities. So um, solidarity is really important in this capacity for understanding that, like, our futures are all tied together and especially 
on stolen land, trying to understand um, what that what those future implications are. It just doesn't make sense to live in silos. And um, yeah, I think all of us participate in things beyond the Jewish community and beyond our Jewish identities, but we've made a choice to be in this um, Jewish formation for the benefit of the JCOM and also so that we can have a loud voice in solidarity with other people. Like, um, in my experience, just on an interpersonal level, attending Nakba rallies for a few years. Like, I remember four years ago, the rally was really small and it, it was really big interpersonally to speak with people and there was a big appreciation for, like, a Jewish turnout at that stage and now like the Nakba rally this year which was incredible and one of the best organized rallies I've ever been to um having a big Jewish presence there amongst every other group as well was like really fantastic and I think a demonstration of what's possible um because yeah the effect we can have on international politics even though we're also, I'll say the benefit of being a group is you can show up to like a labor labor MP's office and demand that they lobby against Israel. That's pretty good and hard to do when you're just a random Jew at home. Definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, you probably have to cut me off. No, <laughs> I was just going to ask. Well, I was just going to cut you off, I suppose, but just to ask. Um, yeah, if you mentioned your Facebook and Instagram, but if you could just share where listeners can find out about Loud Jew Collective and also register to attend the online launch event and find about, out about all those visions of the future. For sure. Thanks. So, yeah, search Loud Jew Collective, Jew Singular. Um, it's also pretty funny. It's like LJC. Um, search that on Facebook or on Instagram, and then you will find the links there to our Action Network uh, registration. If you struggle with that, you can also email loudjews at gmail.com. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us um, this morning, Babs, and uh, look forward to that launch event. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. And just then we spoke with Babs, a founding member of Loud Jew Collective, a new group formed in Nam. Um, and the group is a space for bringing people together and for pushing the boundaries of what it means to be Jewish. Um, and we just spoke there about their launch event that's happening on the 2nd of September. What is the future you dream of? You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast on 855am. Welcome back. Um, we just heard from Babs from the Loud Jew Collective and we're now going to be speaking with Asami from Shapes and Sounds. Asami is a first generation migrant who moved to Melbourne from Japan when she was just four years old. Um, and she, in October 2019, started Shapes and Sounds um, after witnessing the kind of difference in support available to young Asian Australians in comparison to their Caucasian peers at different community services and youth mental health services. And she is joining us today to talk a bit about the lockdown and the impacts of the lockdown on our mental health as a community and as a collective in Melbourne. Good morning, Asami. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on today. No, nah, thanks for joining us nice and early this Thursday morning. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess, uh, just to get started, can you tell us a bit about Shapes and Sounds and what this organisation means to you? Yeah, of course. So Shapes and Sounds is an online platform that promotes Asian Australian mental health, which essentially means that we kind of talk about and acknowledge the impact of systemic factors, like things like race, gender, your class, etc. how all of these factors intersect to impact our mental health and our well-being. And like, like you just said earlier, I started Shapes and Sounds after about six years working in the acute youth mental health and the trauma context here in Melbourne um, and noticing a lot of young people of colour slipping through the cracks in our service delivery and what I found really intense was actually um, the solutions offered by our service and other services in the sector, in our public mental health system, when it came to how we're going to catch these young people of colour in our service delivery, was to increase the number of interpreters mm. and translate our documents. But um, the people that were slipping through the cracks were people like you and I, like people yeah. who have grown up here who speak English, that language is not the barrier. In fact, it's more so to do with um, cultural nuances that, that perhaps service delivery or services don't yet quite grasp. Um, mm. Yeah, so I started Shapes and Sounds and I did focus on the experience of Asian Australians. Obviously, that's a topic that's close to my heart, but yeah. really we're quite an accessible resource um, for anyone that's interested in thinking about culture and race. Mm. Mm, um, yeah, I'm just sitting here spot on, like thinking about what you said about services wanting to translate um, resources or have more interpreters when you're right. It's more nuanced than just language or English as a barrier. Um, and I think like that's one of the cool things about your organisation is kind of highlighting that and creating that space for that reflection amongst Asian Australians in um, Nam and, and across um, this continent as well. And um, recently, you've been running kind of community check-in sessions as well as engaging with community online. With these recent lockdowns that are kind of unpredictable and we never really know what's happening until it kind of happens, what are you noticing as the kind of common themes that people are sharing when they do kind of, um, when it does come to coping with the pandemic? What are some of the challenges that you've been hearing and noticing? Yeah, great question. I think... I mean, the backdrop for this year was last year when a lot of East Asian people became kind of villainized and yeah. the racism that's so covertly directed towards us usually became really overt and visible. And then same with the South Asian community earlier this year. Yeah. So I think these experiences really made people question or, or see like, wow, there really is racism here in Australia. And that in turn really 
made people question their identity and their core beliefs. And then now, 1.5 years into this pandemic, or maybe almost two years, um, I would say a lot of people are feeling just so incredibly exhausted and burnt out and that experience of feeling really numb. Yeah. Like, we just don't have that same kind of fire and the passion and anger that we almost had last year. And what's important to highlight is, like, for sure we're in a mental health crisis. There's literally no doubt about it. But the experience of feeling numb and feeling really disconnected and burnt out, like, that's actually more of a trauma response. So which means that we need to look towards trauma-informed practice to help us through this time. And trauma-informed practice slightly differs because it focuses on solutions like sensory experiences to soothe our nervous system. And it also has a really strong focus on, um, like, social connections, building safe and trusting relationships with others. So, yeah. No, that's that's spot on. I think um, we are just assuming that we can just go back to normal and that we can just power through these lockdowns the same way we did last year. But you're right, we've experienced such a deep and difficult experience last year and to just kind of assume we can do it again this year is not true and you're right we do need to kind of focus on our own ways of managing that distress within ourselves emotionally and physically and just spiritually and I guess like what are some coping strategies that you would recommend or that you find helpful I know we talk a lot about self-care and having bubble baths and like going for walks but sometimes it's it extends beyond those it's what are some coping strategies you would recommend Definitely. Like, bubble baths are great, aren't they? But I think we're all like, oh, yes, yes, bubble baths. Um, and it's important to highlight that we all have different sensory preferences. So if you like, like, warm, wet and dark places, then, yes, bubble baths will be amazing. So what's interesting is your body picks up so many cues from the external environment and actually feeds that through your senses and feeds that back up to your brain. Um, and it it signals to your brain how you're doing. Am I safe? Am I okay? So actually, we think a lot of the solutions are based around thinking and talking, so very kind of like cerebral experiences. But if you can, even like without thinking too much about it, think about your sensory experience. So thinking about the light and the temperature of your room, um, like the different textures that you're wearing, the different kind of foods that you're eating, that can actually dramatically change the way that you feel. And when you start to identify your sensory preferences, you can kind of create your own little map or um, palette, I guess, of what works for you. And I think in terms of social connection, it's, it's just so important in this time of increasing isolation to definitely check in with your colleagues. Sometimes work is the only time that people have live connection with others. Mm. Um, and really important to find spaces where you can be yourself and be seen as who you are as well. So um, I think Shapes and Sounds has been a real refuge and a point of connection for so many Asian Australians during COVID. Um, and, and, yeah, we've got a community on Instagram um, and you can join our 30-day challenge, which is happening in Mental Health Month in October. So that's like a big group discussion with a whole bunch of different Asian Australians um, and we're going to go through like a big reflective process together which again is a bit different to doing it alone. Mm. Um, as someone who has joined in on many Shapes and Sounds sessions I can attest to how warm and welcoming and safe that that community is so if anyone is interested um, how can they check out or follow what you're doing Asami? 
Yeah, sure. And thank you. Thanks for always being there too, Malika. <laughs> no. And, yeah, so if anyone is interested, the best place to check you out would be on your um, Instagram, yeah? Yeah, Instagram, you can look at at just shapes and sounds, so make sure you put the J-U-S-T in, um, and our website is the same, just shapes and sounds dot com. Yeah. Um, and yeah, awesome. on the internet, we should be there. Yes, um, thank you once again for joining us, Asami, and kind of sharing those helpful and pr- um, practical tips um, and those reflections. Thanks again, Asami. No worries. Thanks, Malika. No. Bye. You've been listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. We were just speaking to Asami from Shapes and Sounds, an Asian Australian mental health and wellbeing organisation, and she joined us to talk a bit about the impacts of COVID and lockdown on our mental health and some helpful tips and tricks for managing our wellbeing during this time. Um, and, yeah. So... Here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and we are coming up to the end of our show. Um, It's been another big one Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe we can, you know, run through what we had on the show today. Sure. I mean, I'm always amazed that we... Get a five-segment show in and have time for a rundown. I'm not <laughs> going to eat up too much of a rundown time, though. So you heard a, a – first up, you heard the second part of a two-part interview with Jay Engenide, where he spoke about the experiences of refugees stranded in Indonesia due to the Australian government's border regime, the consequences of being stuck in a country which is not a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, and the work that refugee activists are doing to raise awareness and fight for their rights. And Jay Anjanide is a Rohingya journalist and journalism editor at the Archipelago magazine. You can find the Archipelago magazine just by Googling them or going to thearchipelago.org. And the Freedom Street documentary covers the story of Janide and other refugees trapped in Indonesia due to Australia's border regime. And you can donate to their fundraiser at freedomstreetfilm.com. Yes, and then we spoke with Dylan O'Hara, Advocacy Coordinator at Fixin Collective and Gallivanting National Programs Manager at Scarlet Alliance, um, about the road to decriminalising sex work in Victoria and the information kit that both organisations have developed to support people to make submissions to the government's public consultation process. And they're due on Friday, and you can find um, that information kit at vixencollective.org forward slash decriminalisation. We then heard from who is a parent and co-founding member of Vietspeak. They joined us to discuss the work Vietspeak does around bilingual education and their open letter to the Maribyrnong City Council calling for support and funding for a Vietnamese-English bilingual early childhood education program in Melbourne's West. Uh, And then I spoke with Babs, a founding member of Loud Jew Collective, um, about the group that's newly formed and also their launch event, which is happening on the 2nd of September, called What is a Future You Dream Of? And you can find out more about the group and that event by searching Loud Jew Collective on Facebook or Instagram. 
And lastly, we just spoke with Asami from Shapes and Sounds, who is a first-generation migrant from Japan. Um, she spoke to us about the ongoing impacts of numerous lockdowns um, on our collective mental health, as well as some helpful strategies for looking after ourselves during this period. Um, if anything kind of came up for you during our show today, or if you've reflected and recognised that maybe you do need a space to reflect or need some additional support, don't forget you can always reach out to Lifeline, which is open 24-7 Australia-wide, and you can call them on 131114. That's 131114. Yeah, fantastic. It is really important that, I mean, you know, reiterating the fact, and we, we, we have belabored the point many times on this show, the most important thing for mental health support for the majority of people is making sure there's a living wage, so raise the rate, but... Um, in the absence of that or alongside that is really important to take care of our mental health and, you know, try and keep going, reach out to people and, you know, you're not alone. Um, there's no shame in, in speaking out and connecting with people. And um, I did promise earlier on that you'd be able to hear that full interview with JN Janide later on today. And that will be from 12 to 1 on 3CR 855 AM or streaming live at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. So if you wanted to hear the whole section, which is last week's segment, this week's segment, and then a little bit more that we weren't able to include, um, that is from 12 to 1 today. And I think that's all we have time for for today. We'll see you next week. See ya. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.